Well, good morning. It's great to see you. Glad that you're here with us as we continue on through the Gospel of John. We are working through the last words of Jesus. This is the time where Jesus is kind of unpacking with his closest followers right before his arrest and his crucifixion. He's trying to prepare them for his leaving, for his departure, which will be not only in his death, but after his death and resurrection, also in his ascension back to the Father. So think of it as Jesus' last words, preparing his disciples. Hey guys, before I go, I want to hone in, I want to focus and specifically talk to you guys. So Jesus is no longer talking to the big crowds. Right now, Jesus is just talking with his closest followers. And as we jump into that, I want you to entertain this idea. See if you've ever found yourself saying this, because I know I have. I found myself saying, man, a miracle would be really nice right now. Right? Have you ever found yourself saying that? Man, a miracle would be really nice right now. Like just a big, just out-of-the-box movement of God, undeniable, majestic, magnificent, just blow me away. I need a wow moment from you, God. I need you to step in and perform a miracle, something that is just, in, uh, un, you can't ignore it. It's undeniable. Wouldn't that be great to have a miracle, a miracle that would, that would strengthen the faith of those who already believe and bring people to believe who don't yet believe? I, I found myself in a conversation with a friend, and I thought this thought. I was talking with a friend just a couple weeks ago, and we were discussing how he's struggling right now. He's just struggling with believing in God. He's getting to that point in his life, you know, as he approaches his 20s, where he's been raised in church, and he has wonderful, wonderful Christian parents, just awesome people. And as we were talking, he felt like, you know what, Paul, I don't know if I believe what I believe because I believe it. I'm struggling with maybe I believe it because I love my parents. And I believe my parents. I trust my parents. When they tell me the stove is hot, I didn't touch it. When they told me that God is real and that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, I believed it. Well, it's not a bad thing to trust your parents. That's a good thing. But he said, you know what, Paul? I kind of wish that God would just show up in an undeniable way. And I had to tell him, hey, man, I understand. Like, I can sympathize with that. I have found myself at times, and I'm sure you have too, even if you've been a follower of Jesus Christ for a very long time, it would be really nice, God, if you showed up in a big way. A miracle would be nice right now. And so as we were talking, and I really appreciated just the kind of vulnerable and just kind of authentic conversation we were having. And so I asked him, I said, so when you say miracle, are you thinking God riding in the sky, I'm here, comma, believe in me, dash God the Father. Just write that in the sky. And he kind of nodded his head like he understood where I was going. He, he still felt that I was kind of empathizing with him. But the humor kind of lightened the mood a little bit. And he said, yeah, that would be nice. And I said, man, you know what? I understand. I said, let me tell you, I think God has a really good balance. He has a really good balance. that he, There is plenty of reason to believe. There are plenty of reasons. There's enough out there for us to believe. But there's not so much that it forces us to believe. That God would write in the sky like that. Now we're forced to believe in him. But there's a mountain of evidence. There is enough for us to believe, but not so much that we're forced to believe. 
And then the conversation led to me kind of giving some evidence that I felt was very compelling for the truthfulness of Christianity. It's a wonderful conversation. But I was thinking about that conversation, and I thought to myself, I missed something. You ever do that when you're talking to somebody, and like 15 minutes later, you're like, man, I should have said this. Right? Especially when you're arguing with your wife. I know you never do that because you go to Valley Bible Church, and if you go to Valley Bible Church, you never argue with your wife. It's just automatic, right? But you ever get done with an argument, like, man, I could have used that. Right? I felt the same way as I was talking to my friend. I thought, you know what? I missed something. In fact, I started to examine myself and realized I don't think I've ever presented some evidence to anybody. Something I missed, I mean, I listed evidence, I did, but there's one form of evidence that I didn't mention to him, and it's actually a form of evidence that I don't think I've ever mentioned to anybody when I've been in that kind of conversation. And here's the shocking thing of our passage today, is that form of evidence is really high on Jesus' list, as compelling, as a reason to believe. And I was shocked to find that I have never ever shared this form of evidence. Ever. And maybe you haven't either. But Jesus finds it very compelling. It's not the only reason to believe, but he believes it is a compelling reason to believe. And it's one that I didn't share with my friend. We talked about miracles. We talked about historical evidence. But we missed one really big thing. Let me show you that big thing in John chapter Three, or sorry, John chapter 13. You're thinking if you've been with us a while, John 3, oh, we're going to be in the gospel of John forever. No, we're in John 13. I didn't forget. John chapter 13, we're going to start with verse 31. And here's what we're going to realize. The compelling, the compelling evidence that Jesus is going to bring up for the world to believe is very simple. Love. Christian love. As Jesus talks to his disciples, as he prepares them for his departure, he's going to say, hey, I'm about to leave you, but something is going to stay with you. And that thing that's going to stay with you, the thing that's going to be uh, in your presence and just saturate your community, that thing, I'm leaving, but what is staying is so compelling, the world is going to believe. And the thing that stays is obedience to a command. And that command is that followers of Jesus Christ would love each other. If you want to get the main idea, the big idea of today, you can write it down very simply as this, a very simple sentence. You can put it on your sermon notes. I'm hoping you take sermon notes as you walk through every Sunday that you're with us. So at the very top, you can write this. Jesus leaves, his love stays, the world believes. A very simple, rhythmic formula we're going to get from our passage. Jesus leaves, his love stays, and the world believes. Right? Let me show you how Jesus explains this to his disciples. First, he's going to talk about, I'm leaving. I'm leaving, and you need to be prepared for my leaving. Look at verse 31. Verse 31 says this. And when he had gone out, now just stop right there. They're not talking about Jesus here. Somebody else has left, and this is Judas. Judas has just left. And what is Judas going to do? Judas is going to betray Jesus. He's a key figure in the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. He didn't do the whole thing, but he definitely is a key component of Jesus Christ, his teacher, being crucified. So Judas has left already. 
He's going to go to the priest, and he's going to speak to the religious leaders. He's going to show them where Jesus is at, and he's going to lead them to them or to him, so he can, so they can arrest him. So the plot is starting to unfoil for this betrayer. Now Jesus has an even smaller crowd. So he had just his closest followers. Now Judas, the betrayer, leaves, and he has these followers, the ones that will stay true to him after his resurrection. It says this, And when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. What is he talking about there? There's a lot of glory going around here. Right? The Father is being glorified. The this, this Son of Man is being glorified. And then, and then he is glorifying the Father. And the Father is glorifying him. There's this glory going everywhere. What is Jesus preparing us for? The crucifixion moment. That's what he's preparing us for. He says the Son of Man is going to be glorified. He said, yes, the betrayer is doing his thing. He's about to execute his plan. He's about to betray me. But Jesus says behind the scenes what's going on is the Son of Man is doing something and God the Father is doing something. So it looks like the betrayer is in control. The religious leaders have the upper hand. But behind the scenes, what's happening? God is unfolding his plan. And this plan unfolding has to do with glory. And Jesus uses the term, the Son of Man is glorified. Now, who's this Son of Man? Well, it's not any Son of Man, right? So it's not all sons that have ever been born. No, Jesus is speaking of himself. In fact, Jesus loves this term. It's how he refers to himself. In fact, it's, it's his favorite term, especially in this gospel, son of man. What does that mean? Well, it's a term from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel, a prophet, hundreds of years before Jesus ever came, had a vision, a vision of the son of man. And God gave the Son of Man a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. So we have a forever king with a forever kingdom. And Jesus calls himself that Son of Man. What you've been waiting for, the forever king with the forever kingdom, is right here. Now think about how odd that is. This doesn't seem like Jesus is starting to move towards enthronement. Right? The parade is coming. The king's about to be announced. We're going to christen him or we're going to, you know, do whatever. We're going to do the ceremony to say, hey, here's our king. Where is Jesus going right now? To a throne? No, he's on his way to the cross. Isn't that ironic? Isn't that strange? Isn't that weird? No, 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 Jesus. You're supposed to put a crown on. A gold one, not one made of thorns. You're supposed to be praised, not ridiculed. You're supposed to ride in triumphantly, not drag your crossbeam all the way up to Golgotha's hill. See, this is what's most shocking about Jesus. He's a different type of king. He will get the crown, yes, but he gets the crown via the cross. And in going to the cross, what does he do? He glorifies the Father. All right, look down at our passage again. It says, Now the Son of Man... This forever king with a forever kingdom is about to be glorified. The Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. How is God glorified? 
and the death of his son. How is going to the cross to receive the crown later, how does that bring glory to God the Father? How does that shine attention upon him in such a way that we would say, wow, you should be honored, respected, and praised? How does the death of the Son glorify the Father? The most famous verse in this gospel, John 3, 16. For God so, what? Love the world. And what's the next phrase there? He so loved the world. Okay, how do we know that? Because he created it? Because he sustains it? Because he keeps us breathing, our heart beating, our brains working? No, what is John saying? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's talking about sacrifice there. See, how do we know that God loves us? How are we given attention to, 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 to see the love and the depth of affection that God has for us? We see it in what? The cross. Not that you were just created, that he just made you and he's intimately involved with every molecule of your being. That should make you feel loved. Absolutely. The psalmist speaks about it. He says, you knew me in my mother's womb. You knew me. You knit me together. You were intimately involved, intricately involved in my very personhood. But that doesn't scream the love of God to its fullest extent. When you turn up the volume all the way to the top, what screams the love of God is what? That he would give his son as a sacrifice. And this is what Jesus says he is doing. I am taking on this mantle, this burden, this sacrifice, and I'm screaming to the world, the love of the Father because he's willing to give up what is most precious to him and that's me. I will glorify him. And then what happens after that? Uh, look, look down at your verse again. Verse 32. If God, or sorry, if God is glorified, you almost see like there's a, there's a step here. God, the Father is glorified in the sacrifice of the Son, the willingness of the Son to die and to rise again. And what, what's God's response to that? If God is glorified in him, God will also, also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. The father responds to the obedience of the son and does what? He glorifies the son. All right, let me show you this in Philippians chapter 2. How I, I think there's kind of this, this kind of sequential kind of build up here. This one and two. This act one, act two. This if and then then. If you're confused about where... Philippians is, I always remember, girls eat popcorn. Those are Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians. That's how you put it all together. Girls eat popcorn. So I'm in Galatians, Ephesians. I know you're thinking that's very juvenile, but never, you're never going to forget it. Somebody said it to me one time, and now I can never forget it. So I'm in Philippians chapter 2. Look at the movement here of God receiving glory and then Jesus Christ receiving glory. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. And being found in human form, he's talking about Jesus, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's showing the love of the Father in his death. And then look at the response. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That happened, verse 8, the therefore. That means what's happening after, right, is caused by what happened before. His obedience to the cross, now what happens? How does God the Father respond? Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. It's beautiful right here. We see the, the, the love of the Trinity. 
the Father and the Son, right here on display. I'm going to glorify you, and in response, you are going to glorify me. It's beautiful. And then Jesus kind of turns to his disciples and says, but in order to do this, I got to leave you. I got to leave you. In order to be obedient to the Father's will, I have to die. So I'm leaving you in that way. But in order to be exalted by the Father, what must be done? After I raise again from the dead, I must be exalted to sit at the right hand of the Father. So he's saying my pathway of obedience and then God's pathway to glorify me and exalt me leaves me away from you. So look at how he responds to them. Go back to John chapter 13. I'm going to leave you. And look what he says in verse 33. I think this is just so tender of Jesus here. Go back to verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am, you cannot come. You see that? Little children. He's explaining to them the plan of God. I need to be obedient to my Father's plan, obedient to his will. And as I die, and I leave you there, I will come back, I will be resurrected, but then after the resurrection, I'll be with you for a little bit, then I'm going to ascend to the throne that's been prepared for me. I will ascend, I will be exalted, and I'm going to have a name above every other name, and that means I'm going to leave you. And as he explains this plan that he loves, he realizes what it means. I have to leave you guys. So what does he call them? Little children. He's not insulting them. It's a term of affection. and It's the only time actually in this gospel that Jesus would use that term. What's interesting is John, the gospel writer, will use that term. He'll pick up that language and he'll use it in his letters to the churches when he writes John 1, 2, and 3. He'll use this terminology. I think he's picking it up from Jesus here. He wants to talk about kind of the, the intimacy and the depth of the relationship that he has. So Jesus is sorrowful that he has to leave these guys. Guys, I'm going to leave you. But look what he says. Little children, it's just for a little bit, man. Just a little bit. I'm not leaving you forever. It's not goodbye forever. It's just goodbye for now. Right? Look at how Jesus states that. You will seek me. Or sorry. Go back to verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now Jesus is referencing a conversation here he's already had with the religious leaders. He says, I spoke this to the Jews. But that's not the same words exactly. We see this in John chapter 7 and in John chapter 8. Jesus says to the religious leaders who are opposing him, you can't go where I'm going. And you're going to look for me, but you won't find me. And then he takes it another step further. In John chapter 8, let's just look at that. John chapter 8, verse 21. Look at how direct Jesus is in verse 21. So he said to them again, I'm going away. You will seek me. Sounds very similar. But then we'll look at what he says. And you will die in your sin. Where I'm going you cannot come. Is Jesus giving the same words to the disciples? All right, guys, I'm leaving. I got to go. You're going to die in your sin. Peace out. Right? No, 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 no. That's not what Jesus is saying. Not even close. 
To the religious leaders, he's saying, you guys don't get it. You're going to look for me. You're not going to find me. And because you've rejected me and the king that I am, sadly, you will die in your sin. But it's not the message he's giving to his disciples. You see this. Look in John chapter 13. Let's just go back. We see it in the next verse. After Jesus has this conversation in verse 36. Look at Simon Peter responds. I'm in John 13, 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow what? Afterward. So Jesus is saying, I got to go. I'm going to leave you, but just for a little bit, but just for a little bit. Okay, Jesus, I don't know your time frame, but a little bit has been a really long time because we're still waiting. We're still in between. These words to the disciples are very true for us because they died waiting. We're living waiting. We're still waiting for Jesus to come back again. So he says, little children, and he could speak that term very tenderly to you. I'm leaving. I'm going to come back. I promise. And then Jesus changes gears here. And this is what I think Jesus is doing. I think Jesus is saying, yes, I'm not going to be here. My presence is not going to be here. You're going to miss me. But something will stay with you. Something will remain. Something of me will remain. I know you won't see me. We won't hug. I won't necessarily teach you with my voice. But there's something of me that is staying with you. Again, if you go back to the big idea, Jesus loves, or sorry, Jesus leaves, his love stays. Look what he says in verse 34. Here's what's staying. A new command I give to you, that you love one another. Now, this is kind of weird. A new command. So God has never told us to love before? Is that what you're saying, Jesus? If you're familiar with the Old Testament, all the stuff written before Jesus, love is a pretty big deal in the Old Testament. Jesus is not novel here in saying, hey, I think God expects us to love each other. Deuteronomy chapter 6 said we should love God. Love God with all that we are. Leviticus chapter 19 said you need to love not only God, but you need to love your neighbor as yourself. So why does Jesus think this is new and Jesus think this is novel? Hey, groundbreaking newsflash, God wants us to love. No, it's not new in that way. God has always wanted us to love. But here's what's new about this. And this is the only time in the gospel where he calls this command new. He calls them to love in other places, but he calls this command new. What makes it new if God has always expected us to be loving people? It's because the standard of love has now changed. The example of love has now changed. Look at the next part of the verse. A new command I give to you, that you love one another. Okay, How, Jesus? I love how Jesus is very clear. He wants to speak away any ambiguity. Well, how do I love? Do I just not yell at people when they cut me off on the freeway? Right? Do I just mow my lawn so I help the property value of my neighbors? Do I just say, please and thank you? What do I do, Jesus? A new command I give to you, that you love one another. How? 
Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. I'm going to leave. I'm going away. This is the plan of God. But here's what stays. My love. I'm leaving, but my love will not be absent. Because I'm commanding you to love like I have loved you. Now this is a dangerous love. A very dangerous love. Because what is this love about to compel Christ to do? To die. To lay down his life. To be ridiculed. To take on a burden that's not his own. A blame that is not his own. A condemnation that is not his own. That's what Jesus is about to do. This is the love that Jesus has for the Father, that he's willing to say, I'm going to take on this obedient pathway to take on the burden of the sins that aren't my own. I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to die. I don't deserve to suffer. And yet I will suffer for those that I love. And I'm going to give them an example. Here's how I want you to love. When a Christian tunes into the idea of love, Hallmark's not the first thing on their mind. Or a love, sings, a love song's not the first thing on their mind. When a Christian thinks about love, the first thing on their mind is what? A man dying on a cross, bleeding out, publicly humiliated, crucified, naked, where people are surrounding him, ridiculing him. When we think of love, we don't think of poems. We think a man hung up like a picture frame right? On a wooden beam, crying out in agony. When we think of love, that's what we see. And Jesus says, I may leave you, but this kind of love will be in you. Because I'm telling you to do it. You love like I have loved you. And they don't know yet. They know only maybe as a kernel of understanding. Because they're before the crucifixion. They don't know yet how radical this love is. They don't know yet what Jesus is calling them to. They don't know yet. But they will know. They will know what love looks like. And what happens when this love comes out? What happens even though Jesus has left? His love remains. What happens? What's the result? What is the outcome? Look what Jesus says, verse 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, by what? By this cross-like love, here's what will happen. All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What's the outcome? The world says, wow. They really believe. They really believe. They are really following after Jesus. Right? They don't know you're a Christian because of your bumper sticker. In fact, that's probably a reason why they think you're not a Christian, because how you drive with that bumper sticker, right? If you're going to drive like a crazy person, please take all Valley Bible logo and merchandise out of your car. Right? If you're going to drive crazy... And not like a Christian, please take the fish off the car. You're not helping anybody. Okay? Put something else on there. Right? Make somebody else's reputation go bad. But Jesus is saying, what is compelling to the world around us? Right? What did I miss when I was talking to my friend? Because surely, man, it would be great, wouldn't it? It would be so great to have Jesus right here. Wouldn't it be great? I mean, Jesus was right here performing miracles. Would you not think that was awesome? I would think that was awesome. 
If Jesus started like, you know what, guys? Forget lunch. Here's what we're going to do. Kinder's for everybody. It just falls, you know, ball tips just fall right in your hand. That would be pretty cool. You'd want to come back to church. You may bring a friend, right? And you bring all your kids, right? You got to feed them, man, this Jesus guy. It would be great to have miracles. It'd be great to just hear Jesus teach. Wouldn't it be great? Jesus knows in John chapter 10, he tells them, if you don't believe me, believe the miracles. That'll testify that you know I'm from the Father. Jesus knows his miracles are compelling. He knows it's great evidence to believe. But Jesus seems to believe that there's another compelling thing that will convince the world to believe. And what is it? The love that's here. Let me show you how Jesus does this again, because I think this is one of Jesus' favorite topics as he talks to his disciples. It's actually one of his favorite topics even when he talks to the Father. Go to John chapter 17. Again, we said in this series, it's the last words of Jesus. It's the last words he gives to his disciples. And it's also some last words or last prayer. It's not the only prayer that Jesus would give in this gospel, but it is one of the last prayers that Jesus would give, and it's a very extended prayer to his Father. And look at the theme that comes up, and it's very similar to the logic we've already seen. Jesus leaves, his love stays, and the world believes. Now, there's a different title that comes up, not the term love, but a different thing. Look at John chapter 17. We're going to read verse 20. And follow the logic here. Follow the step here. The cause and effect here. I do not ask for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's he praying for right now? Praying for you. He's praying for future believers. Man, that's really nice, Jesus. When your Savior prays for you, do you know what his number one request is? It's right here. Interesting, isn't it? Now, maybe it's unfair to say number one, but it seems to be the first thing on his mind. When he thinks about you, when he thinks about believers, the first thing on his mind is not your cat who's sick. Now, I think he thinks about that. Let's take that even further, right? Beyond the humor of that. It's not your health. Right? It's not. Jesus right now is praying to the Father, and the first thing that comes to his mind to pray for you about is what? Is this community right here and how we treat one another. Just like it was in John chapter 13. Love will stay in this community. He uses a different term, unity. I think it means the same, a very similar idea. I do not ask for these alone. I'm in verse 20 again. But also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you that they also may be in us. Now, stop. Remember our passage in John chapter 13. What did Jesus talk about at the very beginning? Father glorifies me, I glorify the Father, right? This is how we relate. So he gives us Trinitarian relationship and community, and then he brings it to what? Our community. Here's what we're doing. I'm glorifying him in my death. I'm expressing his love because he gave up his son. And then after I die and rise again, he will vindicate me in the ascension and I will have the kingdom. I will be exalted and there will be no name higher than mine. I will be the exalted forever king with a forever kingdom. 
This is how we relate to each other. Here's how dad relates to son. That's what Jesus has been saying. And then he takes that idea and says, now here's how you should relate. You better love each other. It's almost like Jesus said, here's how we love each other. You better love each other. He did the same thing here. We are one. We are unified. So I am praying that they will be like us. Do you see that? It's very similar pattern. Then look at the outcome. What happens when the world sees unity? community and love. What happens? Same thing that happened in John chapter 13. Look at John chapter 17. We're in verse 21. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they also may be in us. Listen to this. So that the world may, what? Believe that you sent me. What? The world will believe when they see unity in the church. He doesn't mention a miracle. And that's compelling. It's compelling. He doesn't mention historical evidence, logical conclusions, studies in cosmology, right? He doesn't mention any of that. Philosophical proofs. And I love all those things. I geek out on all these things. But what he says is, on my mind is what? This beautiful community that I'm making. And it's one of love. And it's one of unity. And when the world sees it, they'll say, I don't know what explains this. But I think this guy, Jesus, is why they act like this. Jesus leaves. His love stays. And the world believes. What's odd is I didn't share that with my friend. Right? When I was telling him, hey, I think there's great reason to believe. There, there's plenty of evidence out there. What did I give him? I didn't give him bad evidence. I'm kind of a nerd. I nerded out a little bit. We went through kind of historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the central claim of Christianity, how that came about, all those different things. And it was a good and it was a charitable conversation, but I never mentioned, hey, you know one of the reasons that you should find your faith assured, that you should believe, that you should have confidence and the truthfulness of Christianity is by the love that you experience when you go to church. The unity that you see among believers. I didn't say that. In fact, I've never said it. Ever. And it surprised me. But let me ask you. Have you ever shared that? You're not going to believe the love we have here at Valley Bible Church. You're not going to believe the unity we have at Valley Bible Church. You're just not going to believe it. You've you got to come and see it, man. It'll blow you away. You've never seen love like this, ever. You've never seen unity like this, ever. And I have to tell you, as I've thought about this passage, as I reflected on Jesus' words, I've been really bummed out. Not at you, Valley Bible Church, per se, but I think as, as, as American Christianity as a whole, now I know that's a big thing to take on. I, I know, that's crazy. But let, let me try to explain why I've been a little bummed out. I had a pastor use this illustration one time when I was in high school, just starting to really get a good grip on my Christianity. And it's an illustration I'll never forget. Now, it was super messy, so I won't perform it here. But this is what he did. He took an orange big, just honking orange. You know, we lived in Southern California at the time, so we had produce everywhere, and big old orange. And he shows it to me, and he's, he's 
Okay, what is this? Right? And I had that dilemma. I know the answer is Jesus, but that's an orange. Right? Which is like every question you get at church. I know it's Jesus, but somehow that's an orange and not Jesus. If I don't say Jesus, then I don't get to go to Awana camp, you know, or whatever, right? So, but I didn't know what he was doing, but I knew there was some catch here, right? But I was just, yeah, I was just trying to be, you know, a good person, you know, obedient uh, church member. And I was like, it's an orange. Yeah. And I probably said it like a goofball too. An orange. Right? And he's like, okay. Now, here's what happens. He said, you know, when you apply pressure to something, that's really when you know what's on the inside. That's really when you know the authenticity of something. When you know what something truly is, it's when you apply some pressure to it. I was like, okay, I'm following you here. Now, when you squeeze an orange, what do you expect? It's not a trick question. You're like, you're doing the same thing. Jesus. I expect Jesus to fall out of the orange. No, what do you expect? Orange juice, right? That's what I expected. So he takes this orange. What is this? It's an orange. When you apply pressure, that's when you know the truthfulness of something, what's really going inside there. And he takes this orange and he squeezes it. And all this black ink just starts coming out of all the pores of the orange. And then I asked the question that he asked at the very beginning. What is that? (laughs) Don't eat that. I'm never eating fruit again. I've sworn off fruit. I'm only a vegetable guy now. No. I was like, what is going on? And he said, look, see, you didn't know what this was. Until I applied some pressure. Now, it was an orange. Just take the cat out of the bag, show the magician's tricks. He injected it with printer ink or something like that before his message. But it stuck with me. And he told me, Paul, you know, when the pressure of your life starts to push in, that's when we really find out who you are. Okay. So let's take the last year and a half in America. And let's think about the pressure. Well, I'm starting to, I'm going to convict some people so they turn off the microphone. Like, nope, don't let them say it. That's all right, I'll scream louder. This is fine. Right? Think of what's, what's been pressing on us over a year and a half in America. Okay? We've had political things. Who are you going to vote for? You're going to vote Democrat, Republican, third party. Libertarian, maybe, something like that. You're going to vote for Trump. You're going to vote for Biden. Whatever it is. We've had this pressure placed upon us. We've had the pandemic. Right? I guess we still have the pandemic. I'd really like to get rid of it. Right? But we're, we're still going through this craziness. Is it real? Is it a hoax? Did they make it up? Did it come from Wuhan? Did it come from Chick-fil-A? I've heard that theory. Just kidding. I just made that one up. Right? Right? But where did it come from? How should we be masked? Uh, no, we have freedom. We have this. It gets into the church world. Well, Romans 13, we need to submit to the authorities in place because that's what God did. Well, what about Acts chapter 5 when it comes to you can't say anything about Jesus and the apostles say we've got to preach Christ. We, we, can't, we can't be ruled by men. We must be ruled by God, so we've got to preach Christ. And you get this pressure. Right? And then you get all this racial tension that we're dealing with. Is, is America a, a racist land? If it's racist, how racist is it? Is it up here or is it up here? And what are the responses to that? More pressure. I wonder what came out. Did love come out? Did unity come out? Now, I don't care what came out of the world. The church, 
the American church, those that call the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, we're gonna, when you get squeezed, man, you know what's going to come out? Love is going to ooze out of you. Unity is going to ooze out of you. And the world's going to be like, wow! Is that what's happened? Right? We almost have to reverse engineer it a little bit here. If Jesus says, I'm going to leave, my love's going to stay, the world's going to believe, and I can't tell you how many articles and how many things and how many podcasts and how many pastors, how many preachers, how many professors, I have heard American Christianity is dying, belief is growing, or, okay, or sorry, unbelief is growing. Belief is dying. Many times i got to counsel uh, uh, parents uh, of kids who are in their 20s and their 30s. They abandon the faith. They don't believe anymore. I can't tell you how many of those conversations I've had just in the last month. I see a whole camp for high schoolers and dealing with that whole thing as we're going through. And you see it, man. You see faith slipping away in America, and nobody is denying it. It's all out there. But the church has lost some sense of introspection. Because if we reverse engineer the formula that Jesus gave us, Jesus leaves Liz love stays, the world believes, and if the world's not believing, wouldn't it be foolish to say, well, maybe we're not doing the second thing? Now, I'm not saying that's the only reason, but doesn't it take, isn't Jesus giving us the ethic, hey, before you point a finger over here, you point a finger over here, before you get out the speck, you get the log out of your own eye, and maybe American Christianity needs to realize there's a big log in our eye. And you know what it is? We keep giving black eyes to believers. We keep fighting with people who are already going to heaven. And you know whose house I don't want to go to? A house where I'm invited to the mill and mom and dad just fight the whole time. I don't want to go to a dysfunctional family. Okay, unless the food's really, really good. Like, I'll put up with it. Like, that's okay. Fight all you want. More food for me. Right? But nobody wants to join a dysfunctional family. And I've been really bummed out. I remember talking to a friend who's not a follower of Jesus Christ. Not a follower of Jesus Christ, really close friend of mine. And as we were talking, as the pandemic was, you know, coming and rolling out and and all these things were happening, I told him, I said, you know what, man, I'm really optimistic. That's because it's naturally who I am. I said, you know, I know it's crazy and stuff is just gnarly right now, man. It's just, it's just... It's out of control. We've never seen anything like this. I mean, you've got racial tension. You've got a pandemic and a political craziness. And so much is going on. And this is what I said. I feel like the church has an opportunity to get up to the bat, right? And wait for that pitch and bam, knock it out of the park. I remember telling them, like, we have such a great hope that we can get through anything. And I was so optimistic And now I feel so disappointed. And I think we, as American Christians, again, I'm not saying it's all our fault, but it would be foolish not to hear the words of Jesus. That maybe the world is not impressed with the love that they've seen amongst Jesus' followers. The unity that they've seen. I'll tell you, I've seen it. You don't, have to, you don't have to look very far. Right? You guys know that Pastor Paul has a social media account? Sometimes I think you don't. <laughs> I do. And I'm not trying to hunt things down. But man, you see this. Okay, let's just take race. Racial tension. Is America racist? 
If it is racist, how racist is it? And look, you need to look into all these things. You need to look into the pandemic. You need to look into politics. You need to look into race. You should do all those things. But here's what I'm starting to realize. It's the way we do it that's wrong. You may come to a great conviction. You've done the research. You've read this book well. And you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced of this. But you could still be right in the wrong way. Just because you're right doesn't mean you need to be rude. And we've adopted this value in America. Or sorry, we've adopted this value in the American church from American culture. And American culture says this. Speak loud, speak fast, and cancel the dude who disagrees with you. Right? That's what we do. Like something happens, boom. And you're like, you better post something within four hours or you're a bigot. So you better speak loud, you better speak fast, and if somebody contradicts you, cancel them. That's what we do. And the church has adopted this. Wait, your church isn't opening up? They're not opening up right now? What are they doing with masks? Oh my goodness. They're not even, they're apostate. They're heretics. Good golly. Right? Oh, you don't believe this is a conspiracy? You don't think the Democrats are just making this up and they're in a room in the back? <laughs> How can we get them? You don't believe that? Cancel. You don't believe, oh, there's racism in America? Or, on the other end, right? Oh, you, you don't think there is? There's no racial tension? There's no racial injustice? There's no uh, 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 systems that are broken? Cancel. No wonder the church, no wonder our, our land's not impressed. Because we're fighting each other. What, like... We had such an opportunity. And you know what a very dangerous Christian is? A distracted Christian. And it breaks my heart to think that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has been eclipsed by our petty fights. I feel like we're going to get to heaven and see brothers and sisters that we have blasted on Facebook and we have blasted in conversation and we've been gossips about. And we're going to sit there in heaven and be like, man, did we get distracted when we had probably the greatest stage of worldwide crisis. We got up to the plate and we struck out. And that breaks my heart. And it should break your heart as well. I honestly believe today may be a week where we need to do some serious confession and maybe we need to find somebody that we've hurt, a believer that we put a black eye on. Oh, maybe they disagreed with you. Okay, I'm not, we're not talking about who's right, who's wrong. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is are you right but in the wrong way? And, and maybe there may, be, may need to be some serious apologies from members of Valley Bible Church to members of Valley Bible Church. And that's okay. Because a compelling reason to believe is the love that's seen here and the unity that's seen here, and we can handle that mess here. And I believe we can handle that mess here. And if you are a guest with us for the first time, I'll tell you right now, this church is a loving church. It is a unified church. We're not a perfect church. We don't always get it right. And we're not led by a very perfect pastor either. But when we mess up, when we make a mistake, 
We'll confess it. We'll confess it because we have allegiance to a king. A king who said that our love should be compelling. And when it's not compelling, we'll make it right. This week, I'm serious. Maybe a week to make it right. Maybe you need to apologize to a leader at this church. Another member at this church. Your own kids, spouse, relatives. I don't know who it is. Have you done anything that's hurt the love in this community? Have you done anything that's not brought unity to this community? If you've done those things, then do some time with Jesus and ask him, lead me in a way that promotes love and promotes unity. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you, and we care so deeply about you, and we revere your word so highly. It's not an accident that at Valley Bible Church, Bible's right in the middle of our name because it's right in the middle of everything we do. And we receive your words to us. Your words to us given often by teachers. But it's not the teacher's words, it's your words. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you have taken those words and pressed it into our heart. I believe you have today. I know you pressed it in my heart. Father, I know. I know that I have been in conversations and been in rooms where I have not been somebody who is promoting great Christian love and unity. So, Father, I pray you be with all of us this week. I foresee hearing stories of conversations of brothers and sisters in Christ going up to other brothers and sisters in Christ saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't handle that right. I was rude. I was disrespectful. And I wasn't honoring to Christ in the way I behaved. But, Father, what will you do with a church that's like that? What will you do with a church that realizes it's not perfect, that it's imperfect, and it must confess its sins at times? Father, I don't believe you're done with the American church. I don't believe it. I don't want to believe it. So, Father, help us to take up the mantle to say, we will lead out in this, lead out in love and unity. We'll stop giving black eyes to other believers. We want to be compelling. Christ, thank you for being with us today. It's been an honor to exalt you. It's in Christ in my prayer. Amen.